Welcome back to the Hemingway List, the podcast of brilliance and excellence and everything like that. We're talking about Of Human Bondage, Chapter 53. There's no such thing as abstract morality. Follow your inclinations with due regard to the policeman round the corner. And li- oh, I was meant to write Life, version 3.0, but I wrote Live because I am dumb. Anyway, doesn't matter. Those were the discussion prompts for you. Philip's having a bit of a restructure of his moral code now that he's kind of lost his religion. Swim said the mum of fish, he said, Ha, the Persian carpet showed up again. The foreshadowing is hitting us over the head with a big hammer. Um, I can't even remember the the uh, the, the metaphor of, of the the Persian carpet. I can't remember the significance. What was it? So, if it is foreshadowing something, it's not hitting me with a big hammer because I don't really know what it's trying to say. I'm Norwegian says, uh, Philip has stumbled right into the death of God and subsequently his moral framework is crumbling and he is left with what little he can scrounge from the descriptive world around him and that is that might makes right. I have to say that I'm impressed that he got that far. He's right that philosophers and atheists in general have a tendency to justify those old religious values. Somehow they never really stumble into anything that's seriously different. I'm excited to see where this leads, if he can build some sort of structure of meaning, or if he'll walk around with his cynical point of view, doing whatever he wants as long as the copper isn't right around the corner. You do have that realisation at some point in life, isn't? don't you? Like You can really do anything, and there's only really... Um, what you can get away with and what you can do physically, that's the limits of mm, possibility. But then there's this other structure that sits on top of that, the structure of civilization, where yes, you can do whatever, but if you get caught, there's consequences. So those are the limits, you know, they're imposed by the might of many. The might of civilization overthrows your own might to do whatever you want. So there is limits in that we live in a society and you'll be punished if you break the rules of that society. Um, but beyond that, I think there's something else that humans have, don't we? We have something beyond that where we've got morals regardless of that. You know, regardless of religion and regardless of what you can and can't do for the law, we've also got a kind of civil... I think we've, we're we're group we're we're what are we we're family oriented and we are what's the word gregarious is that the word what's the word when you travel in packs we're pack animals that's what we are it's not gregarious what is what am I trying to say you know what I mean what is gregarious I don't even know what that means now that I say it oh no it is the word I'm looking for yeah we're gregarious there you go. Good old brain, serving up the word that I wanted without me even being sure. Um, all right. We are gregarious creatures, aren't we? So we want to be part of a pack to a degree. For the most part, you know, that's the way we lean. We tend towards that. We've still got our introverts. We've still got our need for solitude. But, um, yeah, we, we do travel in packs. What, uh, what am I saying? Yeah, and so we have... Uh, empathy for the pack and we've got a we've got an urge to protect and and to serve the pack to do what's right right so like if you don't wear a mask at the moment uh, 
in my town, in my city, you can get a fine of, I think it's a couple of thousand dollars if you're in public without the mask. But the reason I put on a mask when I go out isn't because I don't want to get the fine. It's got nothing to do with the fine. I wear the mask because I understand the reasons behind it. It's for the good of our public, our, our group well-being, right? And I think most people, most people would be wearing it for the same reason. It's not because they they don't want the fine. It's because they understand, yeah, this is the right thing to do. You know, I'm going to be part of this society. I'm going to go shopping right now out into the world um, and be part of it with this pandemic going. I will be responsible. And even if so there's people that dispute how effective the mask is and they still play ball because they're like, you know what, I'll do my part. This may or not be, may may or not, may not be doing anything, but I'll still do the right thing. Um, those people are stupid, by the way. <laughs> the masks help. I don't know. They just help. Do they? They probably do. Maybe I'm stupid. I am stupid. Um, anyway, what was I saying about me being stupid? What was I saying about? Oh yeah, I, I like what you said about him. Well, people, when they sort of lose their religion, they tend to justify the religious values. And I think there is quite a lot to justify. I think they're they're pretty solid, you know. There's this thing with the might is right mentality of like, we're animals, we can do anything. Kind of dismisses, it's a bit like postmodern, it dismisses anything that's kind of born out of human anthropology, anything that's man-made, a human construct, there's this kind of argument, you hear it all the time where people will be like, that's just a human construct. And like the end of that sentence is like, and therefore it doesn't exist. But human constructs exist. Like they're still things. You know what I mean? Like, oh, that doesn't occur in nature. Well, yeah, but it still exists and we cohabitate with it. It's still a real thing just because it was created by humans doesn't make it not real. And we are humans and we do live in the society that was built from our own minds. So it's real. And so those values, yeah, the religion grabbed those values and used religion to try to perpetuate them. But the values existed before the religion and they they existed for good reason. They 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 evolved naturally out of human nature. So there's a lot to um i don't know we have a lot of th- we we have we owe a lot of thanks to those sets of values i think we could put it that way um <clears throat> all right what am i saying what am i going on about laura weistich says this i like the concept of having to find your own meaning for life a friend and i arrived at the same conclusion many years ago i wonder what that is what's your meaning for life I don't really know mine. I think it's just to go fast in um, Mario Kart. I live to go quickly around courses and throw green and red shells at cartoon characters. And um, everything else, all the eating, all the sleeping, all the work, all the hygiene practices, all, you know, getting finding shelter, staying warm. Um, it's really all just to serve that function of every now and then I get to go fast around Mario Circuit and throw some red shells. So, there you go. There's my meaning of life. Um, 
Let's read the next chapter. Let's do it. Let's do it. What do you reckon? It's called Chapter 44. Uh, uh, sorry, 54. And before we do it, quick advertisement. This podcast is brought to you by patreon.com slash the Hemingway list. That's a spot you can go to support the podcast monetarily for a dollar a month, $2 a month, $500 a month, whatever you choose, or zero, you know, that's cool too. Thanks for um, the support that my supporters give the podcast. You guys are awesome. Okay, 54. Here we go. Chapter 54. The examination Philip had passed before he was articled to the chartered accountant was sufficient qualification for him to enter a medical school. He chose St. Luke's because his father had been a student there and before the end of the summer session had gone up to London for a day in order to see the secretary. He got a list of rooms from him and took lodgings in a dingy house which had the advantage of being within two minutes' walk of the hospital. You'll have to arrange about a part to dissect, the secretary told him. You'd better start on a leg. They generally do. They seem to think it easier. Philip found that his first lecture was in anatomy. At eleven, at about half past ten, he limped across the road and a little nervously made his way to the medical school. Just inside the door, a number of notices were pinned up, lists of lectures, football fixtures and the like, and those he looked at idly, trying to seem at his ease. Young men and boys dribbled in and looked for letters in the rack, chatted with one another and passed downstairs to the basement, in which was the student's reading room. Philip saw several fellows with a desultory, timid look dawdling around and surmised that, like himself, they were there for the first time. When he had exhausted the notices, he saw a glass door which led into what was apparently a museum, and having still twenty minutes to spare, he walked in. It was a collection of pathological specimens. Presently, a boy of about eighteen came up to him. "'I say, are you first year?' he said. "'Yes,' answered Philip. "'Where's the lecture, lecture room, do you know? Uh, "'It's getting on for eleven. "'We'd better try to find it.' "'They walked out of the museum into the long dark corridor "'and the walls painted in two shades of red "'and other youths who were walking along suggested the way to them. "'They came to a door marked Anatomy Theatre. "'Philip found that there were a good many people already there. "'The seats were arranged in tiers, "'and just as Philip entered, an attendant came in, "'put a glass of water on the table in the well of the lecture room "'and then brought in a pelvis and two thigh bones.' right and left. More men entered and took their seats, and by eleven the theatre was fairly full. There were about sixty students. For the most part, they were a good deal younger than Philip, smooth-faced boys of eighteen, but there were a few who were older than he. He noticed one tall man with a fierce red moustache who might have been thirty, another little fellow with black hair only a year or two younger, and there was one man with spectacles and a beard which was quite grey. The lecturer came in, Mr. Cameron, a handsome man with white hair and clean-cut features. He called out the long list of names, then he made a little speech. He spoke in a pleasant voice with well-chosen words, and he seemed to take a discreet pleasure in their careful arrangement. He suggested one or two books which they might buy, and advised the purchase of a skeleton. He spoke of anatomy with enthusiasm. It was essential to the study of surgery, and knowledge of it added to the appreciation of art. Philip pricked up his ears. He heard later that Mr. Cameron lectured also to the student at the Royal Academy. He had lived many years in Japan with a post at the University of Tokyo, and he flattered himself on his appreciation of the beautiful. You will have to learn many tedious things, he finished with an indulgent smile, which you will forget the moment you have passed your final examination. But in anatomy it is better to have learned and lost than never to have learned at all. 
He took up the pelvis which was lying on the table and began to describe it. He spoke well and clearly. At the end of the lecture, the boy who had spoken to Philip in the pathological museum and sat next to him in the theatre suggested that they should go to the dissecting room. Philip and he walked along the corridor again and an attendant told them where it was. As soon as they entered, Philip understood what the acrid smell was which he had noticed in the passage. He lit a pipe. The attendant gave a short laugh. You'll soon get used to the smell. I don't notice it myself. He asked Philip's name and looked at the long, and looked at a list on the board. You've got a leg, number four. Philip saw that another name was bracketed with his own. What's the meaning of that? He asked. We're very short on bodies just now. We've had to put two on each part. The dissecting room was a large apartment painted with the corridors. The upper part a rich salmon and a dado a dark terracotta. At regular intervals, down the long side of the room, at right angles with the wall, were iron slabs grooved like meat dishes, and on each lay a body. Most of them were men. They were very dark, with the preservative in which they had been kept, and the skin had almost the look of leather. They were extremely emaciated. The attendant took Philip up to one of the slabs. A youth was standing by it. Is your name Carey? he asked. Yes. Oh, then we've got this leg together. It's lucky it's a man, isn't it? Why? asked Philip. They generally always like a male better, said the attendant. A female's liable to have a lot of fat about her. Philip looked at the body. The arms and legs were so thin that there was no shape in them, and the ribs stood out so that the skin over them was tense. A man of about forty-five with a thin grey beard, and on his skull, scanty colourless hair, the eyes were closed and the lower jaw sunken. Philip could not feel that this had ever been a man, and yet in the row of them there was something terrible and ghastly. I thought I'd start it too, said the young man who was dissecting with Philip. All right, I'll be here then. He had bought the day before the case of instruments which was needful, and now he was given a locker. He looked at the boy who had accompanied him into the dissecting room and saw that he was white. May make you feel rotten, Philip asked him. I've never seen anyone dead before. They walked along the corridor till they came to the entrance of the school. Philip remembered Fanny Price. She was the first dead person he had ever seen, and he remembered how strangely it affected him. There was an immeasurable distance between the quick and the dead. They did not seem to belong to the same species, and it was strange to think that but a little while before they had spoken and moved and eaten and laughed. There was something horrible about the dead. You could imagine that they might cast an evil influence on the living. What do you say to something, having something to eat, said his new friend to Philip. They went down into the basement where there was a dark room fitted up as a restaurant and here the students were able to get the same sort of fare they might have at an aerated bread shop. While they ate, Philip had a scone and butter and a cup of chocolate. He discovered that his companion was called Dunsford. Dun Dunsford. He was a fresh-complexioned lad with pleasant blue eyes, and curly dark hair, large-limbed, slow of speech and movement. He had just come from Clifton. Are you taking the co conjoint? he asked Philip. Yes, I want to get qualified as soon as I can. I'm taking it too, but I shall take the FRCS afterwards. I'm going in for surgery. Most of the students took the curriculum of the conjoint board of the College of Surgeons and the College of Physicians, but the more ambitious, or the more industrious, added to this the longer studies which led to a degree from the University of London. When Philip went to St. Luke's, changes had recently been made in the regulations and the course took five years instead of four, and it had done for those who registered before the autumn of 1892. 
Dunsford was well up in his plans and told Philip the usual course of events. The first conjoint examination consisted of biology, anatomy and chemistry, but it could be taken in sections and most fellows took their biology three months after entering the school. This science had been recently added to the list of subjects upon which the student was obliged to inform himself, and the amount of knowledge required was very small. When Philip went back to the dissecting room, he was a few minutes late, since he had forgotten to buy the loose sleeves which which they wore to protect their shirts, and he found a number of men already working. His partner had started on the minute and was busy dissecting out catenaceous nerves. Two others were engaged on the second leg, and more were occupied with the arms. "'You don't mind my having started?' "'That's all right. Fire away,' said Philip. He took the book, opened at a diagram of the dissected part, and looked at what they had to find. "'You'd rather a dab at this,' said Philip. "'You're you're rather a dab at this,' said Philip. "'Oh, I've done a good deal of dissecting before. Animals, you know, for the priests, I... There was a certain amount of conversation over the dissecting table, partly about the work, partly about the prospects of the football season the demonstrators and the lectures. Philip felt himself a great deal older than the others. They were raw schoolboys, but age is is a matter of knowledge rather than of years, and Newson, the active young man who was dissecting with him, was very much at home with his subject. He was perhaps not sorry to show off, and he explained very fully to Philip what he was about. Philip, notwithstanding his hidden stores of wisdom, listened meekly. Then Philip took up the scalpel and the tweezers and began working while the other looked on. Ripping to have him so thin, said Newson, wiping his hands. The blighter can't have had anything to eat for a month. I wonder what he died of, murmured Philip. Oh, I don't know. Any old thing. Starvation chiefly, I suppose. I say, look out, don't cut that artery. It's all very fine to say, don't cut that artery, remarked one of the men working on the opposite leg. Silly old fool's got an artery in the wrong place. Arteries are always in the wrong place, said Newson. The normal's the one thing you practically never get. That's why it's called the normal. Don't say things like that, said Philip, or I shall cut myself. If you cut yourself, answered Newson, full of information, wash it at once with antiseptic. It's the one thing you've got to be careful about. There was a chap here last year who gave himself only a prick and he didn't bother about it. He got septicamia. Did he get all right? Oh no, he died in a week. I went and had a look at him in the PM room. Philip's back ached by the time it was proper to have tea, and his luncheon had been so light that he was quite ready for it. His hands smelt of that peculiar odour which he had first noticed that morning in the corridor. He thought his muffin tasted of it too. Oh, you will get used to that, said Newson. When you don't have the good old dissecting room stink about, you feel quite lonely. I'm not going to let it spoil my appetite, said Philip, as he frown- as he followed up the muffin with a piece of cake. All right, there we go. Uh, another chapter down. Philip is, well, a very much life version 3.0. It's a whole new uh, world for Philip, the world of medicine. Very cool. Who was it that predicted that that's the way it was going to go? Nicely done to that person. I can't remember who it was. Um, all right, have your say over at the subreddit. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.